and then, here and there, and always at sexpotcomedy.com. Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded live on February 18th, 2015. The theme of the evening was a grand gesture. Okay, your next storyteller. She is a, a stand-up comedian and speaker in town. She runs a monthly show that blends comedy with sex education. It's called Sexcom. Please welcome Debbie Shear. Just want to caution you, if you choose to look up Sexcom, online has been brought to my attention by me that if you just type sexcom that i i can't be responsible for the trauma that you might see it's fucked up so what i would encourage you to do is say sexcom denver and that's going to have a happier outcome i'm going to leave it at that You know, when people find out that I have two adopted kids, the typical reaction is, wow, that's that's great, my cousin's adopted. And then when they find out that I have two adopted kids who are African-American and biracial, it changes a little bit. And they'll say, wow, how lucky are they? So great that you saved them can't even imagine what their life would be like if you hadn't come along. And then after that, like that isn't rude enough, they say, um, so, what do you know about their real mom? Was she 14? Drug addict? Are they crack babies? <gasps> Are they? Wow. They say, do you know anything about their real dad? Is he in prison? Was he in a gang? What do you know? What do you know about him? The best was my ex-mother-in-law, who when she found out that we were going to adopt and we were going to use an agency that specifically worked with African-American and biracial babies. I mean, they're not working with the babies. Obviously, that's weird, right? Like the baby, But you know what I mean? Like, that's the... Okay. She said, uh, oh, girls... You don't want to do that. You don't want to adopt a black baby. All the drugs, the problems. You girls need to adopt a Chinese baby. Now those kids are smart, and she's going to look more like Debbie. I'm Debbie, by the way. Just (laughs) If you thought there was another person in this story who's Asian and who's Debbie, it's, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm Debbie. And I don't think I look Asian, but I, I don't know. 
<clears throat> Maybe I do. And so what typically, my response, I have this very visceral reaction and my head starts to pound and I just really, you know, you know, we all have that inside voice and that inside voice is the voice that you sure as shit better not listen to and act on because at best you'll lose friends and at worst you might get arrested. And so my inside voice when all of this is happening is just shouting, shut up. Stop talking. Or sometimes I think, wow, I'm so sorry that you've seen so many crappy Lifetime movies about adoption that you think it's okay to be so wildly invasive and ask deeply personal questions and perpetuate really shitty, awful stereotypes. But that's just me. But luckily, I have this thing like right here, it's called a filter. And uh, we all have it. And I really try to employ it because I do think that life presents these really great teachable moments. And so usually what I'll say is, sounds like you're really interested in adoption. <laughs> You've got some great questions. And I'd love to chat with you about that maybe when my kids aren't around. So for me, it's weird because I don't look at adoption as this huge thing. For us, it was just a way to expand our family. That's all. We just wanted to create a family. And that was the way. So I was like, oh, great, adoption, easy, simple, done, which is hilarious because if you know anything about adoption, and clearly some people do, <laughs> it is not easy and it is so not simple. But... I grew up believing that adoption was really the way that people formed their families. And one reason was because I'm adopted and I have two adopted siblings. And I also have parents who never talked about sex or sexuality. So when that happens in your world, you literally think that your norm is what's happening outside in the rest of the universe. And so I lived in this really happy, bubble like every what do you mean all families are formed by adoption I mean I don't even know how I walk through the world not recognizing pregnant people right because that would have <laughs> that would have really thrown maybe maybe I could have would have asked a question then but I, I guess I never noticed I just thought everybody was like adopted <laughs> which is weird that's not the way it is not everybody's adopted just in case you also were traveling through the world thinking I'm just that's not how it is. Most people are not adopted. But anyway, so I remember specifically when my brother, we found out that my brother, we were going to get a little brother, and uh, we were sitting at the table and the phone rang. And my dad answered the phone, and this was like early 70s, so the phone was on the wall. And he answered the phone because we didn't talk about anything in our house. He like took the cord and stretched it. You know, those cords went a long way. I mean, if you had siblings and you were trying to get privacy, you know what I'm talking about. And he went, like, outside the kitchen and around the wall, and it, pss, pss, all we heard was whispering, we're eating, I have no idea what's happening. And then he comes back and he motions for my mom to come there, and then they go behind the curtain, and they whisper, and I still have no idea what's happening, and then they come back, and my dad gets the phone, and again goes to the secret hiding place, and calls my grandparents. And two hours later, my grandparents show up. And then my parents, like, I don't know if they had wheeling bags back then, but they had a suitcase, and they're like, see ya, we'll be back in a few days with your baby brother. 
And then they drove to JFK and got on a plane and went to Kansas and came back. And I'm not kidding, like a few, they were not kidding. And a few days later, they came in and they were holding a laundry basket. And my little brother was in it. And I was like, well, he's adorable, but this is curious. I mean, <laughs> the sequence of events, even for a kid who is stupid, was like, it was not, just wasn't quite making sense. And the really tragic part of this story is that I spent, I'm not going to tell you how many years, but way too many years really believing that laundry baskets served like three purposes. <laughs> Clean clothes, dirty clothes, and babies. And that was it. And so because my parents didn't tell us otherwise, I was like, I don't know. There's a lot of laundry baskets in the store. I don't see a lot of babies in there. It's very confusing. And then what really, really just blew our minds is one day my mom called us into the kitchen and sat us down and said, well, just want you guys to know that now there were three of us all adopted at this point that you're going to have a little baby brother or sister. I was like, all right, well, I guess Nanny and Papa will be here in two hours and we'll see you in a few days. And uh, bad news, I've turned that laundry basket into a disco for my Barbie, so I don't know exactly how this is going to go down. But my mom looked at me and she said, oh, no, 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 no. The, the baby's in here. And I'm sure she said stomach. Ugh. She probably said, the baby's in my tummy. And I was like, what? She goes, and it's going to be a while. It's going to be like months before you meet him or her. And I'm like, if you can envision, I can't do it because I'm holding a mic, like my head exploding. <laughs> I'm pretty confident there was brain matter all over the kitchen because I, I didn't get how that was going to happen. And again, you'd think that'd be a great opportunity for your parent to go, oh, hey, newsflash, you might want to talk to my kid about sex. Uh, they seem a little confused. We're like sobbing on the floor. What do you mean it's going to be months, 42 weeks, 40? What is this bullshit? Like, get on a plane and bring us a laundry basket. But they didn't, they didn't think that was appropriate. But I'm going to tell you, the coolest thing about growing up in a family where the number of adopted kids is greater than the number of biological freaks, as I like to call them, <laughs> is that we would torture my little brother. <laughs> Most people have the story where they say, oh my God, my siblings told me one day, remember that one day, Johnny, newsflash, you're adopted, huh? And the kids freak out about that. Well, we would say, I'm embarrassed. I'm, I feel shitty even saying this out loud. <laughs> And I'm going to have to go call my brother immediately and apologize, but I'm going to share it with you. We would, call, we would say to my brother, hey, Ken, guess what? Do you know how much sex mom and dad had in order to conceive you? Do you even know how much sex they had? It was like 11 years worth of hardcore fucking. Us, nothing. Laundry basket, phone. That's all you needed for us. That's it. But you? I'm pretty sure long. I mean, I'm 47 years old, and I still cannot imagine my parents having sex. And so I can, my brother's 39, and he's in therapy for a lot of things, and I think that's 
I feel confident that that's one of them, and I feel just a slightest twinge of guilt, but not enough to stop telling that story. <laughs> Sorry, brother. Um, but, you know, bottom line is this. I mean, for us, we chose adoption. It was never this big, altruistic thing. It was so simple and pure to us. And so being, I grew up in a family that didn't talk about sex. I'm lucky that now I talk, I mean, look what I do for God's sakes every month. How do you think that came about talking about sex and comedy? And so I really empower my kids to hear it. That didn't come out right. I talk to them about it and then they have a choice whether they want to hear it, but they do. They listen to it because at the end of the day, that's what it's about, right? It doesn't matter how we form a family, if we choose to form a family. It's just that we do, and that it's, it's this product of love. I mean, that's what it is for us. And so I tell my kids, look, I don't care if you forget all of that. I don't care if you forget your adoption story or my adoption story. You're gonna remember one thing, and you're gonna know for sure, without a doubt, what a motherfucking laundry basket is for. Thank you. Your final storyteller is, uh, she is a founding member of this amazing theater we're in right now, Bumport Theater, and uh, she is a fit, yeah, yeah, go, yo, you can clap for that, absolutely. She is a show favorite, and she is also a personal favorite, so please welcome Aaron Rollman. Okay, so... Uh, I got an email from Andrew, the other, the other uh, host of, this, uh, of Narrators, on uh, this last Friday, asking if I wanted to tell a story tonight. And um, I have a couple of stories that I'm like, oh, those are such fun stories. I want to tell it narrator sometime. But they didn't fit into the theme. And so I wrote him back. And I said, I have to think about if I have any stories to tell that fit this theme. And then I asked all my coworkers. Uh, if they could help me think of a story from my life that fit grand gesture. And they were like, uh, yeah, when you donated your kidney to a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I'll tell that story. I'm going to tell that story. And I, I like talking about it, but it actually makes me really uncomfortable to talk about it under the theme grand gesture. Um, because the thing about grand gestures is that uh, when you're on the making them end of things, uh, something doesn't feel grand when it is so simple. And I know that uh, calling uh, giving away an organ simple uh, sounds like false modesty. I know that is a weird thing to call it. But I know, now I know, a lot of people in the living donor community and although we all did something that is statistically unusual uh, for almost everybody that I know, um, it was genuinely not a big deal. Um, which is not to say that I, I don't understand that the story is very different on the other end of the exchange. On the receiving end, it was a very big deal and it was grand, but I can't tell that side of the story because I didn't live it. Um, so when I tell people versions of this story, there are generally three reactions. Um, people think I'm an angel, people think I'm crazy, or people want to know more about the process. 
Um, I'm interested in the third reaction uh, because I am neither an angel or crazy. I am, and this is language that I'm stealing from another donor, I am just another asshole with an extra kidney. Um, people who want to know more about the process are the ones that interest me because I get that donation is not by any means for everyone in this world. Um, but in fact, there are a percentage of people that it just makes sense to. And when people want more information, um, it's often because they've hooked into that part of it and they're like, oh, wait, what? You can do what? I, tell me more. Um, it just made sense to me. I thought, oh, I, I could do that. And I never once questioned that during my screening process. Um, I had seen a friend in kidney failure, and I had seen her get a new one. And I had seen how quickly her life turned around. And that is a pretty powerful thing to watch. And I had been willing to give her my kidney um, no question. Uh, so when she didn't need it, I thought, well, why wouldn't I give m my kidney to someone else who does? Uh, it was totally just logic, you know, that like I woke up thinking that one day and I was like, that's logical. I can't fight that. That just makes sense. Um, and then you add to that that I'm the type of person that thinks having surgery might be interesting. And <laughs> then that's what happened. Um, and the thing is, is it was really, really interesting. Um, so I'm a healthy person and my experiences with the death of loved ones has actually never involved watching them deteriorate in a hospital specifically. So I have the privilege of not having any negative associations with those places. Um, so the medical stuff was really, really cool to me. I thought getting a CAT scan was so fun and weird. I recommend it. <laughs> They'll be like, we're going to inject this stuff in you and you're going to feel like you peed yourself. And you do feel that way. <laughs> but you didn't. <laughs> it's so crazy. <laughs> um, I did not love uh, collecting my urine for 24 hours, but I can cross that off my bucket list of aberrant behavior. <laughs> I have super difficult veins to draw blood from, so I was stabbed just all over the place. Um, but I don't have a problem with needles, so it was really just an opportunity to banter with super flustered nurses. <laughs> so I was donating through a, a program called the National Kidney Registry, which is a system of paired donations, and it's a really fascinating kind of barter system for organs. And that is multiple organs because you can donate more than your kidney. You can donate half of your liver, which is crazy amazing because they regenerate. Um, but the, so the paired donation system works like this. Um, if my brother needs a kidney and I am not a match for him, I can volunteer to donate my kidney to someone else if he gets a kidney first. So it's this very interesting system of people who love each other and want to help each other but can't help each other. And so they try to put circles together of all of these people to donate. And it's quite hard to do because it's hard to get matches that work all the way in a circle. 
So then what happens when someone like me comes along and throws a free kidney out into the world is that they start to make the very best matches they can and they often make these chains of um, people. So not only is the National Kidney Registry trying to find the very best person to put my kidney in in the country, um, but it starts this chain. So at first they pieced together a 12-person chain, but then at least one of the people was tragically too sick to actually go through um, with the operation. And so then they have to rebuild and reconfigure that whole chain over again. And, and actually waiting to be scheduled for my operation was one of the most agonizing parts. But then when you think about all the coordinating that went into it, it's like a pretty magical part of the process as well. So in the end, um, Nine people got new kidneys, starting when mine flew to Virginia on a regular passenger flight <laughs> that had a layover in one of the Carolinas. That's so crazy. That's the kind of fun, crazy stuff I learned. And I think it actually is just crazy and interesting that we can even do this with our bodies. It's like some guy just cut me open and pulled out my kidney. Like that happened. Like in the movies, when you see, you know, it's like he put a thing, a knife. It's not called a knife. <laughs> but he cut me open and I have a scar that's as big as my surgeon's hand. You know, like that's the size the scar needs to be so he can reach inside and hold my kidney. Which is nuts! <laughs> so he listened to Kesha during the procedure, I've been told. <laughs> he was super embarrassed when I asked him about that because normally his, like, his patients would never know what he was listening to. But I had a photographer in with me, and so she told me that, and he was like, I was like, I heard you listen to Kesha while you were operating on me, and he felt very embarrassed and awkward. <laughs> so the procedure, he's listening to Kesha, the procedure starts at four in the morning, and he's rocking out to Kesha. The first half an hour is just positioning my body in the way that he wants, which that's interesting, you know? Like flopping my body around until it's where it needs to be. Weird. So really, the whole thing is just this strange adventure for me full of all these interesting facts. And so the idea that it was a nice thing to do didn't really occur to me for like most of the process. And even like post-op, I was interested in the process of feeling better. I thought it was weird and interesting. You know, you go into the hospital perfectly healthy and then you come out unable to laugh or cough without like really hurting a lot. Um, and that's a strange thing. And I had my first catheter experience and everyone thinks that's terrible, but I was like, you don't have to think about peeing for 24 hours? That's awesome! <laughs> because they were making me have a lot of fluids. And so I was just like chilling in my hospital bed, which is so great. Because actually staying hydrated, the thing I'm sure I complained about most to the people in my life was that I had to drink Gatorade and I really hate Gatorade. And I had to drink a lot of it. And so I'm sorry if I blew a potential sponsorship with Gatorade, but I do think it is disgusting. So that was the worst part. That was the worst part of the whole thing. Um, so I think uh, in the face of all the fascinating stuff, like also 
another thing I learned when I was researching is um, there was this donor who had her kidney removed through her vagina <laughs> to supposedly reduce recovery time, but to avoid having a big old scar. It's also and so taken out through her vagina. That's what... <laughs> because let me it's not if you watch steel magnolias and you're like that's what kidney donation is like that is not what kidney donation is like anymore they're like you know julia roberts take it out of your vagina now um but in the face so in the face of all of this information the act genuinely didn't feel like a grand gesture it just felt like a really, really human thing. Um, partly because there were so many humans involved in it, in the planning and in the executing. The whole thing is like this complicated meat exchange between humans that although it is complicated because it takes so many people, it, it is simultaneously so simple. And so I don't know much about my recipient, because you do it anonymously, and, 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 you, and you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with the idea that you might never, ever know anything about your recipient. I know people that have been in touch with that, their recipients. It just kind of depends. Both parties have to be okay with it. Um, I don't know much about him. Uh, I do know the most important thing, which is that he's doing really well. And I know that I was a needle in a haystack for him because his antibodies were super fucked up at the time and his body would have just rejected, honestly, 99.999% of kidneys that came his way. And obviously I know he is a male. Uh, and the only other thing I know, besides that he had someone in his life who was willing to donate on his behalf because the chain continued, um, is that he was 13. And that really shouldn't make a difference but it does. Um, as pragmatic as I tend to be about this whole thing, when I do think of the other end of the story, um, I do remember that there is something magical about it and something grand, even though it makes me a little bit uncomfortable to say that. Um, but somebody thought they were gonna lose their child. And then out of the blue, a kidney got flown on a regular flight. <laughs> That stopped in one of the Carolinas first, I don't remember which. <laughs> and he got a new lease on life. And then as a thank you, someone in his life passed that gift on to somebody else. And so even as this person that I am, who doesn't think of my gesture as being particularly grand, perhaps because I had too much fun doing it, <laughs> the connection to other humans the sheer number of people involved, and the idea that some of my meat let a 13-year-old just be a regular kid again has a good amount of grandness in it. Um, and I know that that's a good sentence to stop on. I get that because I do theater, and so that was like the the end sentence. <laughs> but I do have to say before I stop that if you're sitting there and you happen to be the type of person that thinks, I could do that, you are probably right. And if you wanna talk more about it, you just let me know. Thank you guys.
Aaron Roman, everybody. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by Ron Doyle. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by Breckenridge Brewery, making balanced, approachable, and interesting handcrafted beers in Colorado for over 25 years. Check them out at breckbrew.com. For more information about The Narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to thenarratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>